Rebecca Rag Sykes, thank you so much for coming on to Evolution Soup from your home in Wales, United Kingdom. You are a Paleolithic archaeologist specializing in Neanderthals, as well as a writer, having recently released a best-selling and critically acclaimed book all about Neanderthals entitled Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Death, and Art, which describes a people that were not, as many still believe, dim-witted brutes, but rather emotional, artistic, and just as enlightened as Homo sapiens in their own way. So uh, how are you doing, Rebecca? I know you've been uh, very busy with interviews for your books, but also uh, recently recording uh, uh, this here, an audio version of Kindred. So uh, what was that like doing that? Um, yeah, I'm well, thank you. Um, <laughs> and thank you very much for having me um, on to speak. I, I did actually do the audio book some time ago. I did it just before the release mm. of the book in the UK, which was August last year. So it was right in the middle of that ah. first lockdown that everybody was experiencing here. So it was it was quite a strange experience. Um, uh, Audible, who it was with, uh, the production, um, they basically put up a little studio in my front room and I had to uh, sort of ask my uh, family to sort of stay out of the way and... Um, <laughs> Yeah, that was like nine days um, wow. that we were recording. Um, it was a real, real marathon because we weren't in a proper studio. And I live in quite a rural area and you'd think, oh, it's quiet. But uh, no, you know, there's a there's a small a regional airport near me. So people uh. were out flying their planes still. There were tractors going past my window and combine harvest. I couldn't hear any of it. I'm in <laughs> Chapter 7 now. I can't hear any. And you read it very, very well. Oh, we had to stop hundreds of times a day. So it was, yeah, it's the final product is, is very sort of smooth. <laughs> but yeah, getting there was a bit of a marathon. <laughs> wow. Well, before we get into the world of Neanderthals, let's just hear a little bit about your background. Rebecca, did you always have an interest in science and in particular Neanderthals? I think I definitely always had an interest in the past. Um, I was certainly one of those children who likes to sort of scrabble around and likes natural history. You know, mm -hmm. I liked collecting things and that included stones and um, old bits of pottery. If I found them in my garden, I grew up in London. Um, so there's sort mm -hmm. of urban archaeology there. And my family would go on holidays around to sort of, you know, heritage sites um, in the UK. And, and I was definitely drawn to, to imagining the past. And I do really remember one thing that sticks out. I, you know, like a lot of people in the UK, we grew up watching Time Team, um, you know, the very, very popular archaeology series that was mm. on in the 90s um, and later where they had like three days to dig a site. And it was, yeah, that was my real introduction to what archaeology was. Um, and I found it fascinating. Um, and also I strongly remember when uh, Ertzi the Iceman was discovered oh, yes. that the uh it's actually a copper age i think um uh male body that was mummified or preserved um frozen in the ice up in the alps and that was like a real sort of light bulb that went off in my head like just not just the... about that since haven't they <laughs> yeah i have no 
actually seen that, but, um, yeah, but I remember Man. like, yes, yeah. yes, you're right. Yeah. I remember writing a, an essay for school about that. And it was, it wasn't just like, it wasn't the mummy, the, the body aspect. It was the stuff he had with him that Ooh. really grabbed me. And, you know, that is, that's archaeology. It's material culture, you know, and I think that probably really made me understand the potential for what we could learn and, and what we might be missing about lives, human lives in prehistory. So I kind of started out a little bit uh, more recent in time than, mm. than Neanderthals. And if I went on an excavation when I was um, uh, 14 or 15, and that was a Roman site, Fishbourne Roman Palace. And so that was my first dig as well. Rebecca, uh, when was the first Neanderthal discovered and described? Uh, what is the history? Neanderthals have actually sort of been with us since the beginning of our discovery of, of human origins. They were the first other kind of human, the first hominin that we really came across. And so they have been there all the way through the discipline itself evolving. Um, but if you go back to the mid 19th century, um, which is just before when we first uh, realised what Neanderthals were, um, there was already some understanding of um, geology and the sort of that the earth was extremely old compared to traditional biblical accounts. And there was also um, huge interest in fossils, fossil animals, even there had already been discoveries in the 1830s of fossil um, apes in Europe. Nevertheless, the first recognition of a Neanderthal fossil um, didn't happen until 1856 when in uh, Germany at, uh, at the Neanderthal, the Neander Valley, um, there was a massive uh, marble and limestone quarry. Um, and from a cave in this natural gorge full of full of um, caves and cavities, and it was actually a, sort of a, a local beauty spot that people would come to because of all these lovely formations with the river. But they, in order to actually get at the rock that they were after, they had to clear out all of sort of the deposits inside yeah. the caves. And it was from that material that the first body parts of a Neanderthal were found it was essentially it was the top of a skull and some pieces from the body and they were chucked out by the miners as they were mm. clearing this cave out but it was um, the quarry foreman who recognized that they were probably not animal bones and he alerted um, a local uh, person who was interested in the history um you know sorry in in natural history uh, Johan Fulrot and he sort of sent it up the food chain of, of a scientist to a, an anatomist in Bonn. And at that point, it began to be recognised that, yes, this was some kind of human, but it didn't look like living people. And also the, to those individuals, it didn't look as if it was, you know, mm. just deformed. It looked like something else. And that foreman that turned out point. to be like a champion of science unwittingly. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, you know, there's, it is quite interesting that many of the early discoveries, not just of Neanderthals, but other prehistoric um, sort of findings, some of them were linked to, you know, industry and extraction mm. um, of aggregates or building of railways and things like this. So the industrialization of Europe um, was definitely part of that. But at the same time, other people had been going 
into caves um, since the 1830s. And the first Neanderthal that we know of that was actually excavated or, or found was in the 1830s in Belgium, but it wasn't recognised as a Neanderthal till later. So that was somebody who was going in who had an interest in fossils and wanted to know, you know, more. So that wasn't the same context as as the Neanderthal discovery in, in a big quarry. Um, but surely there there must have been other people mm. randomly coming across bits of Neanderthals in the past. We just won't know about it. You know, that's lost to history. Yeah, I mean, I think of uh, when it was, uh, was it um, uh, Strompithecus sediba? That was uh, that was discovered because they were they were blowing up bits of, of the ground looking for limestone or something like that. Yeah, in South Africa, there's a lot of different contexts like that for the, for the same reason, um, quarrying and extraction. And it's an interesting question, you know, what, what motivates people to actually go and and uh, dig up caves or be in caves in the first place? Um, and we know that Neanderthals, um, they lived at the near the entrances of caves but they also mm. were exploring deep caves on occasion so that's kind of interesting like what remains did they come across as well themselves <laughs> absolutely right uh let's now have a mini crash course in neanderthals so how would you describe the species in terms of when they existed what they looked like how they differed from homo sapiens and where their species may have come from yeah um essentially i think for a lot of people, if they don't know that much about human origins, um, because of the way that Neanderthals have been framed for a long time as sort of the other to us, mm. they may think all oh, Neanderthals are like a missing link with a very, very ancient kind of hominin. And that's not really the case. Um, the first sort of members of the hominin family, really, um, you know, you're talking three, four plus million years ago. And the first stone tool technology that we have found so far is about 3.3 million years ago whereas the neanderthals don't um uh, split off from our shared ancestor with them until somewhere between about 760 to 550,000 years ago so it's way mm. more recent so they're actually quite close to us chronologically um, and we have a we have a shared ancestor, and then there's a there's a divergence, and the lineage that would become us goes one way, the lineage that would become Neanderthals goes another way, and then we kind of go on parallel sort of um, evolutionary wow. paths. But they're they're pretty similar um, in terms of the overall uh, body development and stuff. Though, so Neanderthals, you know, they're not a missing link to to apes or anything extremely primitive in terms of their bodies overall they're very similar to us um they are slightly shorter but you know by a couple of inches three inches and not a lot um their bodies are stockier um their bones the bones themselves are thicker um and there are some obvious shape differences as well if you look at the skeleton in detail for example the pelvis the hip bones are shaped differently um, the the ribs of Neanderthals flare out more down towards their waist, so they our waists kind of tuck in a little bit. Theirs don't really do that; they look more sort of barrel chested. Um, and obviously, I mean, they stood upright just as we do. They walked fully on two legs. There's no question about that. Um, but I think one of the the clearest differences um, is in the skull. Um, so they have um, overall 
the um, the capacity of, of their brain case is basically exactly the same as ours. Um, mm. The shape, though, is what's different. Um, so Neanderthals don't have, uh, you know, this very vertical chin straight up to the forehead thing that we have going on. Right. Um, the front of their face is pulled forward more um, and they don't have a forehead that is so straight. Theirs kind of goes back more, so it's kind of more aerodynamic, mm. whereas we have, like, much more of a balloon-shaped head. Yes. You know, that's that's unusual. We are the weirdos <laughs> in that sense for having this very round head. Um, and, like, they had a little, a, a little uh, nobble at the back of their head that stuck out. But their face is just big as well. They had larger eyes, um, the the nasal aperture, so that's, that's the hole huge. where the nose comes out. It's very big, yeah. Um, so they probably had really quite sort of impressive faces. Mm. Um, but we can see these features, um, you know, you can even see it in newborn babies. Um, you know, they, they're lacking the chin. We don't, They didn't really have chins. Um, that You can see that in newborns as well. And some of the other sort of the, the different proportions of the body, it's already there. Um, but on the other hand, some aspects like the, the robustness of the bones, the, the thickness and the heaviness of the bones, some of that might be to do with the intensity of their lifestyles as well, because just um, through huge amounts of exercise and also sometimes to do with temperature, that can sort of create a, a more robust body. But certainly there are genetic differences for sure in terms of how they developed physically. Is it true that only Homo sapiens have a chin or am I got that wrong? Yes, I mean, the odd Neanderthal here and there, especially later and in the Near East, they, they look like they might have a little chin, and but that might be to do with interbreeding, uh, which is a whole other sort of kettle of fish. Uh, but yes. in terms of the classic form, yes, they lack a chin. Um, you know, you can feel yours very distinct, um, so they don't have that. Um, the whole we have, what makes our face flat is that the bone cells here are they like they're absorbing bone cells, whereas Neanderthal bone cells here are growing. So as the front of the face is pulled forward a bit, they actually had a space at the, ah. between the back tooth and the jaw as well. So that's because it's been pulled forward. So there are all these little differences that are to do with how they develop, and some of them sort of relate to others and have knock-on effects and things like that. Rebecca, you go into quite a bit of detail in your book about the various technologies that Neanderthals used. This means stone tools, spears, scrapers for use on animal hides, and so forth. Now, in terms of these tools, what do we now think worked best for these people? What technologies might they have mastered? Well, certainly Neanderthals were, I would say, artisans in how they understood stone and other materials, actually. They they understood material properties very well. And um, so whether you're talking about working stone, we call that napping, um, or carving things out of wood or other materials, they they really sort of got that different sorts of stone have different properties and the same with wood and also in how you treat them will give you a different product. Um, so in terms of their their technologies um, their stone technologies which we call lithic technology mm -hmm. um the the neanderthals are part of what we call as archaeologists the middle paleolithic um so paleolithic mm -hmm. is sort of just the whole period to the earliest stone tools up to um around 10,000 years ago um 
when technology's changed a little bit and it was the end of the last ice age. Um, but Neanderthals are defined really by developing what we def- what we call prepared core technology, where mm. before Neanderthals, um, there was the simplest kind of stone technology where you have a, a block um, and you may place that on the ground and then hit pieces off it. So it's kind of like an right. anvil. Um, and that's what we find like three and a half million years ago or 3.3. Um, not long after that, by about two million years ago, um, there's already quite sophisticated understanding of the angles that you need when you hold a piece of stone and actually strike it to take flakes off. And we can see sort of circular patterns of them taking stone off as they turn it around, flip it over, take another one. Um, So Mm. that's a technique that requires an understanding of geometry and angles and and knowing how the stone will respond. Um, So that's already quite ancient. And that technology, um, which is uh, referred to partly to as a discoid, discoidal napping, because the cores sometimes are kind of like shaped like a disc, um, that goes right on through. And Neanderthals did that too. It's very efficient. Um, and later, Homo sapiens used it as well now and then. Um, but as well as that, you have what people probably recognise as um, a really distinctive uh, kind of artefact uh, called hand axes or bifaces, which are worked um, on two sides, basically. So those are the, the iconic kind of tear-shaped objects that people will be familiar with. Um, and that is like a step further on in a way in that you are working with something which has two different faces. You have like a plane, a geometric plane that goes through that rock and you shape one side, shape the other. Some of those flakes that come off are useful too. So that's another kind of technology. And that emerges around 1.8 million years ago, something Mm -hmm. like that. And again, that carried on. Neanderthals used that too, although theirs are a little bit sort of made slightly differently, but the concept is the same. What Neanderthals did, um, and also early Homo sapiens or the uh, species or the populations before early Homo sapiens evolved in Africa, we see a shift where instead of sort of just taking bits off, what you do is you actually shape your core. So you create a surface. Um, You have a hierarchy, basically. So you have an upper surface, which is where the stuff you want is going to come off. But you shape around the edges and the bottom. And that allows you to control what comes off the top. And then you sort of take a final blow and something nice and big will come off. Mm. Um, And that's called prepared core technology. And in Europe, um, we call it Levalois. It's named after a French person. suburb of Paris (laughs) Um, but essentially that allows Neanderthals um, to have a much better control of the products that they're getting off Um, and in particular it allows them to get big flakes which are also really thin much thinner than a hand axe these other big double-sided things and that's really useful if you are moving around the landscape a lot more because as you travel around, um, you may want to resharpen the tools that you have. Um, so, you, you know, you can keep them going for longer. It's more efficient. And if you have a big, thin flake, yes. it's easier to do that than having a massive core. Because if you a double sided biface, um, 
if you resharpen that too much, your angles get messed up and eventually you just can't take any more off and it becomes like a useless lump of rock. So you've wasted the effort of carrying around that heavy lump. So having a lot of flakes makes a lot more sense in energetic terms and it allows you to the landscape basically becomes opened up to you in a new way it it promotes higher mobility and we know that neanderthals were doing that because we can see um from the kinds of rock that they use we compare it to the source we can track that the distances that Mm. they moved were greater than the hominin populations before them so that's the key difference really in in one of the the major aspects of what neanderthals did Yes, and obviously they had a long time, uh, 300,000 plus years of existence to uh, to refine this. So it's very impressive, really. Yeah, and they, I mean, they didn't just do that. This is one of the things that's really important, um, what I hoped to do with the book, which is to get rid of this idea that Neanderthals just did that and that's all they did. And then they just carried on doing that from when they emerged like 300,000 years ago mm-hmm. until when they disappear 40,000 years ago. And in fact... What we now know from archaeology um, mm. is that, yes, they had Lavawa, but they had many kinds of Lavawa and they did other cool things. They had different kinds of discoid. They, they developed their own sort of idiosyncratic ways of taking apart stone, depending on exactly the kind of products they needed. They had whole sequences of um of reducing rock in a particular way and then they would take it to another site and do a bit more take it somewhere else and they were very flexible according to the circumstances they were in and one of the things that people some time ago used to claim was a real difference was that um oh homo sapiens um developed blade technology basically as like a new sexy thing and blades are basically just long thin flakes so like twice as long as they are wide um neanderthals could do those too um we know that they did that they didn't focus on it it wasn't the key thing that they were always interested in but they they could certainly make blades they could even make little bladelets Mm. tiny little bits um so they, they know what works didn't they i mean it, the, the impression yes. that people have is they were very static and they just did the same thing and never changed but they knew what worked and there were variations of what worked yeah and it was the way that they worked stone and wood and other materials it's systematic you know it's not that they're they're not sort of just randomly bashing stuff there's always intentionality in what they're up to um yeah. and it very strongly appears as if they are thinking ahead at least mm. to some extent in that they are expecting to take some of their objects with them and carry them and need to resharpen them. So when that happens, they take mm. the biggest pieces, the, the biggest flakes with them, because if you resharpen those over time, they get smaller. So it makes sense to take the biggest one if you expect to have to resharpen it a lot. Um, so we can kind of see these little threads that point out to us the the fact that they are flexible, they are innovative, um, but they are also quite systematic in what they do. Stay with us. We'll be right back. What's all around you, almost everywhere you look, and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, 
Blue Jays, Cardinals, Sandhill Cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. The first Neanderthal face to emerge from Time's sarcophagus was a woman's. As the social and liberal revolutions of 1848 began convulsing Europe, quarry workers' rough hands pulled her from the Great Rock of Gibraltar. Well, not too long ago, you wrote an article entitled She-Anderthal about female Neanderthals and what we know about them. Now, so many of the reconstructions of Neanderthals that we see in museums are usually of males, but female remains have been identified, such as the Altai woman of Siberia. Uh, so what do we know about the lives of uh, Neanderthal women? Yeah, it's actually quite appropriate because today is International Women's Day. <laughs> wow, fantastic. Um, yeah, so it's, it's good to talk about it. Um, well, it's, it is true that in a lot of the reconstruction images, if you go right back to the mid-19th century, um, when people started to, to draw um, and imagine what Neanderthals were like and they would make paintings or engravings and things like this, um, for a long time, if there was even like a female there in the image, then they would be like in the background skulking in a cave, <laughs> um, not, not really doing doing a lot. Or if they were doing something, then it was usually going to be something to do with skin working or, you know, that's down on the ground and looking pretty sort of drudgy. Um, so, and there was this old image of the male dragging them by the hair back to the cave. Oh, I think that's like a 1950s trope. Really? Yes, <laughs> yeah, I think that's a lot later. It's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, dragging women back to the kitchen after the war. <laughs> There's kind of an interesting <laughs> social thing there. Um, but yeah, um, in terms of what we actually know about Neanderthals and and women, uh, it's quite it's quite complicated in archaeology um, until we have genetics to actually identify mm. female bodies. When when you literally just have skeletons, what you really need is the pelvis. Um, because in men and women, the pelvis shape is different um, to allow for the, the presence of the birth canal and things like this. Um, so if you lack a pelvis, the hip bones, um, it's quite difficult. And what you would then do is try if you had like a site with multiple Neanderthals um, in, you would basically look for the ones that are a bit smaller and a bit more lightly built. Um, of course, that is based on averages um yes on average men are slightly taller and heftier than women but not always you know everybody knows tall women or whatever um so whenever that was being used that was always you know with caveats but since we've had um the advent of ancient uh, dna studies and genetics that has allowed us to identify female neanderthals based on uh, the presence of uh, sex chromosome so the x chromosome so that's been quite useful because in some cases it's allowed us to confirm the ID of female Neanderthals that we thought were female based on, you know, how robust yeah. they were and things like this. So that's kind of nice. And one of the key uh, examples of that is um, the Forbes quarry Neanderthal, which was one of these very early ones found in the 19th century before 
the Neanderthal discovery. This was from Gibraltar. Um, so she uh, lived around 90,000 years ago. We only have her skull, actually. She's also interesting because um, there has been this trope for a long time that Neanderthals all died really young, you know, that they, they mm. never got past their 30s or whatever. And that's really not true. She was in, you know, 40s plus um, and, you know, potentially older. It's quite hard as as skeletons get older, the older they get, the harder it is to be sure about exactly how how ancient <laughs> in terms of their lives yeah. they actually were. Um, but she certainly was older than 40. Um, could well have been a grandmother, but we can't tell that um, at the moment from bodies, um, although there is work underway to do that. But in terms of how, how Neanderthal women overall lived, mm. um, given the identifications that we have, and actually we don't have that many, clear um ones um what we can see is that the neanderthal women that we do have um were just as physically active as men um so they were very strong physically capable um clearly having you know intensive lives um but there are hints that they were using their bodies mm. in a different way so one of the things that's interesting is that the development of uh, the leg bones are different to the development of the male leg bones. And that might be um, implying that the kind of terrain that they moved over habitually was different. Um, so although it's really, really difficult to kind of pick out for sure what was going on, there does seem to be some kind of difference. And it may be that um, males were more regularly traversing very rough terrain, although it is hard to, to be sure exactly, but there is a difference. And mm -hmm. we can see something in the arm bones as well, where for Neanderthal males, um, I mean, Neanderthals overall were... 90% of them were right-handed, just as we are. And the dominant arm usually is uh, the one that's more um, yeah. sort of developed. Um, but we can see in uh, in the Antitar males that the asymmetry between one arm and the other in terms of its of its muscle development and everything um, is really quite strong. It's what you would see in, like, people who who regularly play tennis at like a really high level you know or cricket things like this where you're using a bat or something in one hand that's that's being mm. used really regularly whereas for the the female neanderthals um although again the samples are quite small there does seem to be less asymmetry so whatever they're doing with their arms they're tending to use both arms together more mm. often than the males so there does seem to be something different there um and teeth as well we can see what neanderthals were doing um with their teeth they weren't just eating stuff um thanks to different kinds of use wear um on their teeth so sort of the way that that using their mouths as a tool actually wears the teeth down um both males and females were using their mouths a lot to do stuff with um but again the kind of patterning of the wear in terms of what it looks like and where it is in the mouth is a bit different um so there may also be something going on there that where neanderthal women are and what they're doing on average is is different to the males but we really mm. have to remember that not only the sample size is quite small that neanderthals are not monolithic you know we say oh the neanderthals but 
they not only lived across this huge chronological span, they also yeah. lived, um, which is important because they survive many periods of different kinds of climates, which affects the kind of world they live in. But they also live in a geographically large area. So from where I am in Wales, right across to uh, the Near East, down in the Mediterranean, Central Asia and up into Siberia. So mm. the kinds of lives that they're living varies a lot. And those signals in terms of sex differences may be different we we should expect them to be different according to the kind of world that they're living in um so those are things that it would be amazing to tease that out further in the future but we need larger more sort of clear uh, identification of more females to really sort of start to home in on that stay with us we'll be right back a Little Bit de Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit de Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, we can't really talk about Neanderthals without mentioning the amazing DNA work done in recent years. So. Do you find that people are even more interested in Neanderthals now that we know that so many of us carry their DNA? Yeah, for sure. I think how people relate to them has changed um, all the way through sort of since their first discovery. I think they have they fulfilled the role of sort of the, the other um, something that's close to us, but not close to us. And that we wish to know, but we also wish to keep it at a distance. And um, that's been there from the beginning. And they have been one of the best known, probably the best known and the most popular hominin for an awfully long time. And you can see that, you know, in popular culture, you know, references to them, um, their place in literature and things like this. Um, but since the advent of ancient uh, genetics um, and the recognition in 2010, so it's actually only, what, 11 years now, um, nearly 11 mm. years, um, since it was confirmed that there actually had been interbreeding between Neanderthals and us, and that a genetic legacy from them is still in most living people uh, today. Um, ever since that, I think people really have had a renewed um, mm. interest in them from feeling feeling a connection to them that perhaps wasn't there before mm. but i mean it it does get problematic and you know what's interesting is that whenever i encounter people who have had a genetic test themselves they will say oh i had some neanderthal dna it's really cool or they'd be like oh i had more than most people and they're like pleased about it four percent yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's between it's up sort of I think it's one point two to two two and a bit percent now. So uh, it's not as much as it used to be thought. It used to be thought maybe four percent, but uh, yeah. the percentage has gone down a bit. But most yeah, people seem pleased to to have that association. Um, and I think on a basic level, it's because people are just interested to be connected to an ancient past. You know, in a, in a very fluffy kind of ethereal way and a well it's a well-known hominid isn't it so yes um but on the other hand people who <laughs> neanderthals have kind of been drawn into um 
slightly the Biden, the Biden comment. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, mm. there is the whole using the word Neanderthal as mm. an insult. Um, I don't know when that started, um, but certainly it's um, it's alive and kicking, and people are quite happy to say that. But I'm interested as to whether the same people that will use that word actually use it in a dissociated way from the Neanderthals. And I think actually overall there is a reasonable basic understanding that Neanderthals weren't quite as, you know, stupid as we as we framed them to be for a long time. You know, whether or not people know the detail about Neanderthals, they have they kind of understand that concept. Yeah. And yet that insult remains. I think it's become yeah. divorced actually from the archaeology, which is interesting. Um, but there is also another whole thing going on with the genetics in that people who are uh, essentially um, white nationalists who for wow. some time were very keen to claim a deep European ancestry for themselves and say, oh, well, I've got so much hunter-gatherer DNA in me and all of this. Um, now they're like, well, I've got loads of Neanderthal DNA and Neanderthals were all white. And A, no, Neanderthals were not all white. There's variation from what we understand in their skin colour. Um, they weren't, we don't believe that they were ever very, very dark skinned, but they weren't super pale you know um i'm looking so at the wonderful art behind you by tom bjorkland which yeah yes exactly to, uh, illustrate um, the shandathol uh, um article for yes him. yes um, <laughs> so there is something else odd going on in terms of people people are interested in claiming neanderthals for themselves so there's the whole genetics thing but you can also see it in in other contexts um for example on you know who has access to the to the fossils that come from one country but they're in a museum in another country and things mm. like that so um, i mean britain i think um uh, is dealing with a claim from gibraltar um to have the forbes woman um mm -hmm. and another Neanderthal child, um, not from the same site as her, but from Gibraltar, to have those remains sent back to Gibraltar. Um, so it, it is interesting people wish to sort of possess them now. <laughs> <laughs> a few years back, you and some colleagues founded a group called Trowel Blazers. So what can you tell us about this group? We founded ourselves officially in 2013. So it's quite um, back in the day when, uh, yes, um, we all didn't have children and <laughs> things like this. Um, but no, we, um, it's, uh, myself, um, Brenna Hassett, Victoria Herridge and Suzanne Pillar-Birch. And so the four of us, as uh, what we were then um, early career researchers, so people who are not long out of their PhD and um, just beginning in academia and research, um, we um, got together. We met on Twitter, actually. Um, and decided to form a group in order to promote um, the the presence and, and sort of highlight the role of women in archaeology and the earth sciences, so geology and paleontology. Um, so me, Susie and Brenna are archaeologists um, mm -hmm. and um, Tori uh, is a paleobiologist, so she specialises in uh, dwarf mammoths and elephants. Um, so, yeah, we started the group basically because there wasn't a easily accessible, non-academic mm -hmm. resource collating sort of women's yeah. 
contributions to these fields um, so we wanted to do that and we set up a website travelblazers.com um, which has been going I think we did the website 2015 we actually set up we started off with a tumblr you know back when people oh gosh, did tumblers. Yeah. I remember that. <laughs> yeah so um but now we have like um oh, I think well over 220 mini biographies of of women um you know with nice pictures and stuff and um, just short pieces talking about people's work but one of the things that that really jumped out at us is the a that there were a lot more women around um even if you go right back to the early 20th century and beyond than than people might expect and also that they were not working in isolation you know they weren't anomalies um like oh one woman among loads and loads of men um there were networks of connection between these women as well so they would be mentoring or training or actually collaborating with each other um so there was sort it's of not always ecosystem. a mary anning sort of situation is it yeah i mean even mary anning is interesting because she is um you know she's still described as a, a woman history forgot but actually people have kind of been talking about mary anning quite a lot for the past decade mm. i'd say um, and she's a lot better known than she used to be she's in a lot a of children's books now. exactly with that film ammonite um but she also was not isolated although the way that you would think it because mm. nobody ever talks about anyone she knew but she did have women she worked with in lyme regis where she lived in dorset um in uh, the early 19th century she had a neighbor elizabeth philpot um who was better off than her and didn't have to sell her fossils so she had her own little museum but they used to go out collecting every day um virtually every day so she had her but mary anning was also connected to not only the learned men interested in fossils and paleontology who would come to her and buy the stuff that she had collected um but she also knew their wives, many of whom were independently interested in this, and one of whom, um, the the story of the film Ammonite, which just came out this year, is based on, although it, it plays with the truth a little bit, it is true that Charlotte Murchison um, what came to Lyme Regis and was trained in fossiling um, by Mary Anning. So that is true. Wow. Um, so, yeah, even yeah. for Mary Anning, she wasn't isolated. Um, and you can trace these mini networks out from different women all the way through to the present day. And there's like, you know, you can see generational connections between who who trained who and then and then where they went. Um, and that includes people that worked on Neanderthals as well. Um, Dorothy Garrett is a great example. Um, she was the first Oxbridge uh, professor, first woman Oxbridge professor to hold a chair in Britain. Um, she was awarded that in 1939, um, by which time she had already excavated two Neanderthals, one of whom was that child's fossil I mentioned from Gibraltar, yeah. the Devil's Tower boy, um, and another one she dug up in 1932, or rather her team did, um, from Mount Carmel uh, in what was Palestine then. Um, so, yeah, all these different connections in the kind of work yeah. that I'm interested in. Fascinating. Well, this has been such an incredible dive into the world of Neanderthals. We know an incredible amount about these people, but still have so much yet to discover. But with your book, Kindred, the world knows a whole lot more. So what about future projects? Rebecca, is there anything not too secret you can uh, you can tell us about? 
Oh well, I mean, I'm I'm having the most amazing time <laughs> talking about about the book. Here it is, <laughs> um, doing your your great podcast and and lots of others, and I can't wait for the current restrictions that everybody's living under to be lifted so I can actually go and meet people and, and, you know, go and do some proper live events. And that's going to be amazing. Um, And then the paperback is out in August as well. Um, So there'll be that, but in terms of, yeah, other projects, we're always doing stuff at trailblazers. And we have different projects kind of on the boil there. But in terms of my work, I've got some academic uh, writing that I'm doing at the moment, doing a chapter on um, Neanderthal sexual biology, which is interesting. That's uh, co-written that chapter and what we know basically about their reproduction Mm. and things. And I'm also writing a chapter about the changes in um, representations of Neanderthals over time. Um, so that's uh, that's going to be interesting as well. But yeah, other projects um, I would like to write another book. I am doing a proposal on that uh, at the moment, and it's going to be a lot bigger in scope and sort of chronology. Um, so yeah, uh, it's archaeology still; it's still human origins. But yeah, um, I haven't uh, I haven't got far enough down the line to kind of give too many details about that. But yes, no, I, I've although I although I am you know coming from a scientific context and a background, it's been absolutely incredible to to write a book like this and you know if if people read it they'll see that you know I've I've kind of tried to go to do more than just science and really place people in the past you know at the beginning of the chapters I have little narrative sections and things kind of setting scenes it's beautifully beautifully written I must say oh thank you and and that has been lovely to do that and I want to I want to pursue that aspect of of it because it's it's always interested me writing um so i want to keep keep doing both (laughs) i will leave links to your website and social media in the description below and hopefully we can have you back on evolution soup one day in the very near future thank you so much for having me and i hope everybody's enjoyed listening